0: already been recording, so I apologize for that, Um, but we'll just cut that bit off. All right, psychology nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Alison Jane Martingano, the new host of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here with a very special guest. Regular listeners will know her as one of the previous hosts of Psychology and Stuff, and UWGB students will know her as the chair of psychology. It's Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dundas. How are you doing, G?
1: I am doing terrific. I I know that listeners can't see my virtual background, but uh, I actually... uh, have a lovely blue sky sunny day with some trees with leaves uh as my background to uh to look at myself on zoom (laughs) (laughs) so it's a sunny day forever on zoom (laughs) yeah
0: uh so how's it feel being on the other side of the mic today and and hearing me and not ryan do that little opening script
1: yeah i love it i think it's (laughs) I think it's great, and I'm so excited for the things that um, you are doing this season on Psych and Stuff. Uh, it's it's going to be great. So uh, I, I'm not going to lie, I'm going to miss it. Right, like, but it doesn't feel real yet. That it's not, <laughs> so I feel like I'm gonna need some more time uh, to figure out that I'm not actually hosting it. Um, but
0: it's... If you want to take over and, and start interviewing during <laughs> this festival too?
1: Nope, it is all you. Uh,
0: so you're you're in a happy mood, is which is great because you just did a long flight coming back from uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, where you went to a, a psychology conference. I do want to tell the, the audience a little bit about that. What's the coolest thing you thought?
1: Um, so um, there's a, a place called the Society for the Teaching of Psychology uh, where my fellow psych teaching nerds uh, hang out together. And so it was the annual conference on teaching, which I've been going to for a really long time, like 15 years. And um, I've been running a workshop for the scholarship of teaching and learning, which is a a part of what I do and what we do is um, study how that we can be the best that we can be so that students can thrive in our classes and in psychology as a major. So I learned some cool stuff. I got to see Portland, which is a city that I've never been to Uh, so, I had some great food and I got to go to the Japanese gardens. I had a beautiful view of Mount hood. And so it was a really great fun conference.
0: Yeah. I've been seeing some of your photos on, on social media and I've been a little bit jealous. So, If you've been going for 15 years, Regina, do you have like conference friends that you meet up with every year?
1: Absolutely. And this is a really small conference. And so I have, lots of friends but I also run this workshop which is a mentoring thing so not only do I get to see my friends who I've known for a really long time but I also get to meet new friends and mentor um, some uh, folks who are new to the conference and that's really fun too to take um, a couple of people around a room and introduce them to people and they're like oh my gosh you're that person and uh so it's really fun for both people uh to kind of get that that energy going uh i can tell you that psychology is in a really good place uh because there were so many passionate teachers of psychology at that conference so let's let's get her done because it's been amazing i think uh Um, I learned a lot about like inclusive teaching practices and how to like think about AI and all sorts of things that we're talking about so it was really fun thanks for asking no (laughs)
0: that's that's great and it's nice to to have that that reinvigoration and that passion brought back to teaching um at an annual conference that's that's fantastic I actually want to keep asking you about your teaching. So uh, at UWGB here, you teach statistics, which is a, a class a lot of students feel some anxiety around, uh, but I just say your students love you. So I often have students <laughs> take my research methods class right after taking your stats class, and I hear about what an amazing job you do. Uh, so basically, could you tell me how you do that?
1: <laughs> I'm not
0: entirely self-interested. Uh, so, uh, you know, obviously I'd love some tips I could use in my own class, but I'm really interested on how you use teaching strategies to mitigate the potential negative impact of anxiety that your students might have.
1: Yeah, I, I actually one of the things I do is share a very personal story of my personal journey with math which was not a positive one and so um, I myself have and still do suffer from math anxiety and so I always share that that those experiences with my students on the very first day I also am a first generation college student so um Uh, my parents would have been a normal source of support, uh, if I was struggling with something, but they couldn't help me either, because they didn't understand it, um, the math either. And so I, um, I found a very challenging journey towards statistics. Um, But one of the things I love most about it is its uh, ability to tell stories about humans and the human experience. And so I feel like um, teaching uh, a math related class as a storytelling class, you know, and and numbers and graphs are just another way to try and make sense of us in this human condition as we, uh, we live our lives. And so I, I find that that is a really effective strategy, but it's really authentic to me. And that is the biggest advice about teaching that I've learned over the years is that do whatever is authentic to you because students um, can smell inauthentic teaching styles a mile away. So that would be some of the takeaways that that I've learned through the years and by going to this conference.
0: Thanks, thanks for sharing. Uh, so my other motivation for asking that question was to help us segue into talking about climate anxiety later in the episode. Uh, so you have lots of experience in managing anxiety in the classroom, and you're obviously killing it. Um, but <laughs> in, t- in addition to being an awesome teacher, you're also an environmental psychologist with experts on how our built environment, things like fences or gates, can impact our sense of community. So before we get into into the impact of climate, I wonder if you could talk generally about how our environment impacts us.
1: Oh, absolutely. I could talk for like hours and hours and hours about how our environment can impact us. Um, But one of the things that I'm um, really keen on thinking about for this episode in specific is our interactions with nature specifically. Um, and I'm giving a talk in a in a, a few weeks at a local library about uh, something called biophilia, like a um, biophilic design design that invites nature to be a part of our everyday lives. And that's something that I I think is really important. A lot of times we think about going on vacation to get a a bit of nature and you know like that that's going to like solve all of our mental health issues <laughs> uh, just by going out in nature for a week. But then you go right back to your everyday life. And if nature is not a part of your everyday life, then you're just going right back in, you know, to the same situation and nothing will change. And so I'm a huge proponent for, um, finding the love of nature in our everyday lives not just some fantastical vacation which is also great it's great to go on vacation um, but great to think about how we can create environments in our everyday like just regular lives that give our eyes access to beautiful vistas or um, give our other senses like the sense of smell or the sense of taste of some like organic vegetables or something that's grown in the ground, um, how we can uh, use our everyday lives to, to access nature as well.
0: Yeah, what you're saying is really resonating with me. Uh, so as, as you know, I moved from a mid-sized town in the UK and then went to graduate school in New York City uh, where I had a lab room that had no windows. So I yeah. was in this windowless box for, for most of the day. Uh, and now, obviously, I'm here in Green Bay, which I often tell people isn't all that different from my hometown. So, that, so talking about trees and grass, I used to miss them so much when I lived in the city. And, and maybe having them back again is perhaps something that makes me feel like I'm more at home here.
1: Yes. And you know, like, even if you're not outside in nature, Like looking at nature is a really powerful tool for our minds. Um, There's uh, thoughts about attention restoration theory is one of the big theories in environmental psychology, uh, that looking at pictures of nature or actually being in nature can help us heal more quickly, and it can help our brains recover from stress um, and our bodies recover from stress. So there's so many benefits uh, to it that I think, um, as I say to my conservation psychology class, it's worth talking about climate change and how we save the planet uh, because our planet is worth saving because in in, uh, repayment, it's saving us.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing that, uh, Georgina. Uh, so uh, one of the reasons I brought you in uh, today as, as guest on the show is as I wanted your help in interpreting and unpacking two recent pieces of research uh, on the impact of climate on our minds. Uh, so the first is a recent study that came out of the Chicago School of Business, actually, on the relationship between water scarcity and the propensity for long-term thinking. So one of the cool things about this research is that the authors shared what prompted them to do it in the first place, which I don't think is, is normally shared. And in this yeah. case, it was an observation at a party uh, where two men from two different cities in Iran expressed diametrically opposite life philosophies. Uh, and these two cities, while in close proximity, uh, are differentiated by their water available, av- availability. So one is incredibly water-rich and one is water-scarce. And the authors of the research thought that these distinct environmental conditions could have profoundly influenced the, the cultural mindsets of the residents in these two different cities. And their data suggests uh, that a lack of water inclines cultures towards this sort of more long-term thinking and maybe moderation, while an abundance of water can result in more immediate, indulgent mindset. And uh, so I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on whether, and if so, how, the climate we grow up in can impact uh, long-established cultural norms?
1: Yep, and I think I love the article. I thought it was so cool. Uh, one thing to note is that the water-rich environment is actually the Shiraz, like the city of Shiraz, which is very famous for its wine production. And I thought that that was so interesting, like the link with something that that culture produces Mm. um, as part of its culture could also impact their their indulgence in wine drinking. And it made me think um, about my students, um, many of my students who take my conservation psychology class, whose families are dairy farmers. Mm. And um, there's a, a lot of research saying that uh, consuming beef products in particular, and uh, farming cow with cows is a very resource intensive um, way of, of eating. And um, and how that's such a part of our culture here in Wisconsin. I mean, I think we're the uh, like the drunkest, cities in, uh, in America. I think I've
0: seen Wisconsin. those stats, yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> and I was thinking about um, how our culture is based around a very unsustainable um, way of life that is the lifeblood of many families. And I'm sure that the same thing is true in Shiraz, that um, an immediate indulgent kind of community is also Part of what keeps the community flush with money, um, you know, people whose families are dairy farmers, like myself, I grew up on a dairy farm as well. Um, it's very challenging to imagine um, turning your back on mm-hmm. um, consuming beef, or um, consuming dairy products, or in Shiraz, consuming wine. It's very challenging to imagine not living that lifestyle if it would impact your ability to pay your bills (laughs) and to raise a family. And so I've been really struggling with this thought um, about indulgence and immediacy of of mind um, because I'm not sure that that's the whole picture. But I'm wondering you as a social psychologist, what would you say about um, what you were reading about long-term thinking versus short-term indulgences?
0: I see, I knew you turned it around and, and made me the interviewee and you the interviewer at <laughs> some point. Um, yeah, I, I was a little bit shocked, I think when I read the article uh, with the confidence in which the authors uh, made, some, made some pretty big claims um, about how uh, these effects manifested. Um, I'm not sure I would have felt quite as confident to make such such concrete claims, especially when it comes to things like indulgence, um, because there's. I, I feel like there's a certain judgment that comes with that as well, and um, and I think maybe we need to be careful um, about about how possibly misinterpretations uh, of of that those data. Uh, The other thing that comes to mind now I'm saying that out loud is so another controversial sort of claim made by the authors was that religion may have developed in response to these certain environments. So, uh, specifically, they suggest uh, that um, Islam uh, was likely to form in an arid landscape and the prohibitions on drinking and gambling and and sex may have been extensions of that adaptive mindset where water is, is dangerously scarce. And then as I was reading that, I was thinking, okay, I can kind of see logically where this is coming from in the in the argument you're making, but also, wow, I am not sure how people are going to feel about that as a claim.
1: Yes, and I, I feel like some part of it is the um, correlation is not causation yeah. kind of thing there, and so I um, I read that with just a, a grain of salt, but I But I think, um, you know, thinking about the cultural impacts of something like scarcity uh, is really an intriguing one because, you know, we humans are so complicated. It's not like, oh, we have no water. We're going to, like, practice a religion of scarcity. (laughs) You know, like, that just is not how the human um Behavior exists in in our world, and so uh, I felt like that was a little bit oversimplified look at um, a correlation.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a really great point, and thanks for bringing in that stats terminology there, your students. <laughs> correlation does not equal causation, folks. <laughs> I want to I want to bring it back to to Wisconsin uh, for a moment. So you you talked about the the farms here and the dairy the dairy industry. Um, But the other thing that came to my mind is how incredibly brutally cold it is here in Wisconsin for so many months of the year. Um, So I've only had one winter here so far, which people (laughs) told me was mild. So that's a little scary. (laughs) But I noticed that a lot of my day-to-day behaviors had to change. Uh, So it was something as simple as having to remember to do up my coat before I get out of the car as opposed to getting out of the car and then doing up my coat. And it seems like such a small behavior change that maybe it wouldn't impact me. But do you think that, that the cold climate might be influencing not only our behaviors, but also our minds? And for the folks who were raised here, do you think it had an impact?
1: I, I definitely do. Um, we would call um, extreme weather, which I would say is sometimes the, the case here, Uh, like an environmental stressor. And I absolutely believe that the weather, wherever you are, actually I've I've been, I met a lot of people who are in Texas uh, at this conference who were talking about the environmental stressor of the the heat that they have been experiencing and still experience uh, this month in Texas. Uh, particularly southern Texas, where it was over 100 degrees the last week uh, before the conference. And so I think that definitely uh, that environmental stress is real. And whether it's too cold or too hot, um, we as humans that have a really narrow uh, comfort, comfort range when it comes to weather and ambient temperature, particularly. And uh, so we notice changes in temperature in extreme ways and it, it is stressful. Um, so I, I think that um, thinking about an environmental stressor like uh, typical weather patterns is a bit easier to deal with And your example of like doing up your coat before you get out of the Mm -hmm. car, even having a proper coat is one way in which um, the the environment will be less stressful. Mm -hmm. How you experience and how you perceive the weather is far less stressful when you are prepared for that to happen. And a lot of what we hear about in climate Um, research or like climate anxiety is talk about unusual weather events that are less predictable and uh, happen less often and catch people off guard. Um, Maybe they're able to evacuate, um, but it's usually a very stressful, just in time sort of um, way of, of reacting to that. And I feel like those kinds of events are much more stressful to us as humans, um, the lack of predictability that we know from social psych, <laughs> like the lack of predictability and the uncontrollable nature of these extreme weather events is far more impactful than the day-to-day um, more predictable weather, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's really insightful, not something that I immediately made a connection to. So thanks for for making that connection, yeah, the unpredictability being um, a bigger stressor. Uh, so yeah, let's let's get into that that uh, climate anxiety uh, research. So this is the the second study that I, I wanted to talk about. And it, it differs from the first because the authors here were were not interested in the impact of historical climate but the impact of current and future climate change. And specifically, they're interested in what they call climate anxiety, uh, which is negative emotions like fear, worry, guilt, shame, hopelessness, despair. The list just seems to go on and on in relation to uh, climate change. Now, the first thing I want to note is how impressive the authorship list on this study is. So I had to go ahead and click the See More button when I was (laughs) reading this online. And also the authors come from all over the world. There are authors here from Europe, Asia, America, the Middle East, South America. It's it's really quite impressive. And it's worth noting that in a lot of these geographical regions, climate change isn't a distant threat, but the impact is already being felt today. Uh, And this is really borne out in some of their data. So they find that high number of people reporting very severe climate anxiety. For example, they find that 33% of Brazilians that they interviewed were very or extremely terrified about climate change. And in Iran, it was 26%, in Turkey, 23%. I won't read them all. Um, And I wonder, uh, my first question to you, Jordina, do these numbers surprise you? Is it what you would expect? Uh, I...
1: um... I was actually, i not going to use the word happy, I was actually uh, glad to see that other countries were um, feeling more anxiety because um, I, I'm going to channel our friend Ryan Martin here <laughs> and say yeah, like he's uh, famous for studying a so-called negative emotion of anger, mm-hmm. but Um, I don't believe that that emotions are negative or positive. Um, They get kind of a bad rap for being one or the other. Uh, But I think that there's lots of evidence in this paper and in others, that climate anxiety is actually fuel for change. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think it has a curvilinear relationship <laughs> like um the inverted you kind of relationship that a certain amount of climate anxiety can actually propel people to um to do something they were talking about you know like climate protests or uh, things like that if you feel no climate anxiety at, at all um then you know like it won't spree- motivate you to do anything But I think the opposite is true as well. And I was thinking about Brazil and some of the other ones. If climate anxiety is very high, that's also uh, immobilizing. Mm. And that there is a place in the middle where uh, I think we can do the most uh, to impact climate change and change people's behavior um, in, in the middle, in the moderate region, like a moderate uh, amount of climate anxiety could um, be the the sweet spot that we need to give people enough agency to do something and not too much fear that um, they freeze and mm. in, as a response to that stress.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's so insightful. So, Yeah, I was reading this article and it it seemed like both good and bad news. So the more anxious you were about the climate, the more pro-environmental behaviors you engaged in, but also the more likely you are to suffer from mental health problems. I was thinking, oh no, there's these two different, like it's, it's having both good and bad effects. But I like how you're suggesting that maybe there's an optimum level of anxiety, some sweet spot in the middle that is enough to promote positive change without triggering negative mental health
1: consequences. Yes, and I I also uh, am not a huge fan of the term anxiety okay. um, because I think I feel like we in our day to day lives, not when we're being a, like our nerdy uh, psychology professor selves, but when I'm just being my regular self, if I say the word anxiety to people outside of you know the halls of the psychology department here, um, I think people think something different. Than what this article and other academics are defining as climate anxiety. Uh, and I like um, I, I like to think that it's more complicated than just being worrying and a uh, fearful. Um, because I think um, climate anxiety is also climate grief. I think that there's um, a, a sadness with losing. Things that are very meaningful to us, like um, the destruction of a forest um, because of a, a forest fire, not only is that fear fear-inducing, like anxiety-inducing, it's also grief-inducing. Um, mm-hmm. That people cry about the loss of their land and their and the and the nature that resides there, or loss of species um, through extinction, and how there's grief at thinking that there will be no more like red pandas or whatever and polar bears. Um, that that's a different emotional response. It's equally as important. I think about climate guilt like I was talking about previously about students uh, raised on dairy farms mm-hmm. and how they learn in my class about um, how not great for the environment, their family businesses, and then how do you reconcile that when you go home and you know are are involved in you know milking cows and slaughtering um, cows for cattle for food? Uh, the guilt that you feel for making money off of something that is clearly uh, not doing our our planet very good, and so it's it's so much more complicated, I think. Than worrying and being afraid, um, it is deep uh, in our in our psyche.
0: Wow! Yeah, I love how you're making the connection there with the, with the, with your students and how what you're teaching them in the classroom is is potentially triggering this uh, dissonance. Use another nerdy term, and uh, <laughs> and uh, how how we rectify that, and that's a, that's a difficult psychological process. Actually, so I'm gonna bring back here a connection. So we talked earlier about how to manage anxiety in your statistics classroom. And so I'm wondering, do you think we can use any similar techniques to manage this climate anxiety?
1: Yes, yes, uh, I do. I think, um, uh, first I I really am just gonna say again, that um, recognizing that climate anxiety might not be, fear and it may not represent itself as fear and so there are different ways that we can help people deal with sadness and deal with guilt and deal with anger um as a response uh as well like climate anger yeah <laughs> uh, and i I think that there are different ways in which we address those different kinds of emotions. But when I'm thinking about true anxiety, true fear, um, I think what comes along with that is a lack of agency and a lack of belief that one single human can make a difference. I also believe that there's a lot of fixed mindset um, that goes along with that anxiety, thinking, I, you know, I, I'm not an environmentalist, so therefore I can't do anything. So it doesn't even matter, but I feel like empowering people to realize the things that they can do, the things that are within their, uh, control, giving them agency, uh, and feeling like they belong, uh, in the community, uh, I think it can make a big difference. One of the things we talk about in my conservation psych class is that building community can reduce climate anxiety. And by that, I mean fear, like the, mm-hmm. the fear uh, of the world ending kind of uh, climate anxiety. And that um, uh, the particular article is called Block Party to Save the Planet. And it's all about creating relationships with other humans that you reside with physically, not on the the computer, but physically reside with and um, doing block parties, growing food that you consume together uh, in your local neighborhood can actually reduce the fear that you feel about the larger climate issues happening. And so... I think there's a lot to be said for creating a community where every human is valued for however small part of the the story they are still a part of it. Um, So I think that that's one of the things that, that we can imagine doing is creating community. I also think we have to tailor the emotionality of the messages that we're sending to people to not fear monger, because we know as psychologists that fear mongering immobilizes people. It doesn't mobilize them, it immobilizes them. And so um, putting out their advertisements or social media campaigns where, um, you know, you're showing horrid images of, you know, sea turtles with straws growing through their noses and things like that, like these horrific images are actually doing the opposite Mm. (laughs) of what we want to do. Um, They're making people so afraid and feel so, um, like it's an impossible problem that they can't possibly do anything about um, that they're just not engaging at all. So tailoring emotional messages um, followed by um, clear paths to action is a better way to do that.
0: Yeah. Wow. I'm so glad you said that. I I think sometimes I fall into the trap of, of feeling like it's an impossibly large task. And, and also I, I feel like I make so many um, mistakes that I can't rectify them. So what I I mean by that is, um, so I fly to the UK once a year, often twice a year. And sometimes I I feel like any little action I do will never even begin to make up for the dent I've just made by making that transatlantic flight. Uh, And so it's good to hear uh, some motivation at least to keep engaging in smaller pro-environmental behaviors as a way to maybe manage some of that fear.
1: Yes. And I also feel like, okay, like I want to fly home and see my my family in the UK. So um that is a, a choice that I'm making. And I often think about like a carbon offset. So you're making this choice, but it doesn't mean that then you know, like you go like off the wagon and you also like start doing other um, behaviors in excess, but rather thinking about uh, it as a an offset. So if you do something that is very carbon consuming, how can you then offset that uh, with something that is more, um, more sustainable? And so maybe you ride your bike somewhere uh, rather than driving your car um, three times a month, To try and offset the carbon impact of your flight.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Eugene. Let's try that out. Um, Not when it starts snowing, though.
1: But while. while (laughs) No, unless you get yourself one of those fat tire bikes and uh, a (laughs) lot of warm gear.
0: (laughs) I just snowshoe it around a little. talking talking about how coded it is no uh, i wanted to return to the fact that uh, these data in the study come from all over the world and when i looked and i looked quite hard last night it didn't look to me like they had any data on climate anxiety from wisconsin or in fact from anywhere in the united states uh, so my first question is are you familiar with sort of the levels of climate anxiety here in wisconsin or at least within the united states and I asked because my untrained assumption is that maybe Wisconsinites are less anxious and that maybe we're assumed we're somewhat safe here and that it won't impact us because, you know, maybe on a hot day we're like, oh, yeah, it's, I've it's, heard, you know, folks joke that it wouldn't be bad to have a little bit of climate change. I wouldn't mind a few milder winters. Uh, so I guess my second question is if there isn't data for Wisconsin's climate anxiety, what would you speculate it might be?
1: Yeah, there probably is, but I don't know it. <laughs> that would have required a little uh, a little research, I, I think. Um, but I, I I don't think that you're far off. And I had I hear people say often, like "Thank goodness for global warming," and they they use the term global warming rather than climate change. Mm. Um, and we. Um, environmental psychologists and conservation folks have changed their language from global warming to climate change for that very reason. Um, But when I hear people living here in Wisconsin, they always say, oh, I love global warming. This is great. Um, But it's easy to say that on a one-off kind of thing. But really the impact of climate change is... In our face every day. It's on the news, it's in social media, uh, and I don't feel like we feel like we're immune to it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I notice is um, we've recently uh, had about bout with um, bugs that are impacting certain species of trees that are native to Wisconsin, huh. like the emerald ash borer, and Um, In the neighborhood that I live in, they have cut down 318 trees um, because of the emerald ash borer killed it, and that that is related to climate change, that these insects are coming from warmer climates, like down in southern United States, and they're moving up north, and I think, I feel like if we think about it beyond the cold weather, we see climate change happening everywhere. Um, but I, I feel like um, that maybe we don't look at it in those particular ways and do feel somewhat safe uh, from uh, generalized climate change. And to be honest, we are somewhat safe. <laughs> I recently read an article um, about, uh, climate, climate hardened cities. Okay. Uh, And there were no climate hardened cities south of Iowa. (laughs) Like there was all like up in Northern America, um, Canada and, um, in Northeast Wisconsin was included in there because we have ample fresh water um, from the Great Lakes, and um, with the rising temperatures, we still will not um, be at a large fire threat, you know, and other sorts of climate issues. And so, I do think that because we are climate hardened uh, uh, against climate change that we're going to see an influx of what they're calling like climate immigrants, um, people who are moving from the coasts inland and from the South North um, Mm -hmm. to escape some of those um, climate change issues that will happen.
0: Wow, yeah. That's that's kind of uh, crazy to think of that people uh, moving uh, moving to Wisconsin for the weather uh, to live <laughs> right.
1: But right. It, is,
0: it is interesting that you point out that the effects of of climate change here may be more insidious and harder to spot, like like you were mentioning with the, the trees. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't have immediately made a climate change connection there with my head. So I'm oh, I, I'm glad you you pointed that out. All right. So as I uh, think, you know, um, we do a section called Ask the Expert, uh, where I ask for our listeners to send me questions that they'd like you to answer. Uh, So this weekend, we actually got a lot and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to play them all for you, uh, but we'll go through as many as we can. Are you ready?
1: Sounds good. I'm Sarah from Coleman, Wisconsin. If climate anxiety does cause some people to engage in climate conscious behavior, do you think it would be a one time thing or a long term thing? In other words, does climate anxiety last for a long time or a short period of time? I think I I don't have any like evidence to back this up, even though I'm supposed to be an expert. (laughs) I was like a little unprepared to answer that question, but I think um, because uh, climate issues are going to be continued to worsen. I feel like, uh, unfortunately, that climate anxiety may be a longer term uh, thing, and it may get worse. Um, And and I think we need to think about that. I read a really interesting article um, about college, about higher education, and how we are failing to prepare students um, for the workforce in um, like a disrupted biosphere of a world. Mm -hmm. And that we're not preparing students for the things that will happen to them in their later lifetime of work that will impact the ways that they do that. And I was thinking about like the construction workers that we're working out in the really extreme heat uh, this summer or um, UPS drivers or something or like one of the delivery services and how their trucks were not air conditioned. And I think we need to be mindful of ways in which to um, help protect our future generations for a world of work that will be impacted by climate change. And in that way, I'm sure that it will produce climate anxiety, fear, um, and uh, those kinds of things in humans for the long term.
0: All right, thank you. I'm going to play the second question for you now.
1: Hello, I'm Colton from Bondiwell. With the rise of online platforms and social media, I'm curious to know if you think these digital interactions will strengthen or weaken our sense of community in local neighborhoods. How might we then leverage technology to foster a better sense of community? Wow, what a great question. Thanks, Colton. Wow, um, I I think uh, online communities have to be more intentional, uh, and they are less able to create what I call serendipity. Serendipity is the just... Um, casual interactions that we have with people who live in our physical communities. Um, You know, I'm thinking about, you know, you're pulling out of your driveway and uh, the kid across the streets ball, like comes out in the street and you stop and you roll down your window and you're like, go ahead, you go get it. And they're like, hey, hi, how's it going? Like those small human interactions, um, that I call serendipity, that are that are chance encounters uh, happen less often in a curated online environment. But I feel like we need our worlds to be bigger than just the people that we can curate uh, to have interactions with. And I feel like serendipitous community interactions are important for, our sense of belonging. And um, so I I feel like we have to work harder to create community and online environments. And I use the word community, but I I think what I really mean is belonging. That we need to create places online if we choose to um, that make other humans feel like they belong and feel like they have value in that online environment. I feel like that's a lot easier to do uh, in the physical community. That didn't quite answer your question, Colton. Sorry about that.
0: (laughs) No, but I I appreciate the answer and and a a bit of a a sales pitch there for for maintaining more physical communities as well. Uh, Another question uh, now. Hi.
1: I'm Maddie Dusterbeck from Sharon, Wisconsin. And my question is, how is climate change affecting farms and our food? I love this question because uh, I recently toured um, a sustainable farm here close by um, to our university uh, where they're worried about runoff and irrigation. And, you know, when you have a drought situation, the ground is so dry that it can't Uh, absorb the water when it does rain. And that's what uh, leads to flooding. And it takes away a lot of the nutrient rich soil when it's very dry and then rains a whole bunch and then very dry um, that it's hard for farmers to capture the water that they need when they need it. And so um, they do uh, this like cross planting where in between uh, rows of corn, they plant other smaller plants um, that are there growing like in the shadow of a corn stalk uh, that help the ground absorb the water. Uh, and they it absorbs the water as well. And it's like um, some other sort of food product like soy or something shorter uh, that they plant in between. So there are clever ways. And our farmers in the United States are and probably other places in the world as well, are learning how we can capitalize on our um, such smart uh, uh, things and and technology, how we can learn to thrive in a future environment where climate change will surely continue to rise. And um, so I have great hope that farmers will figure out how to do that sustainably and that was just one example.
0: All right, wow, thank you. Uh, so we're coming to our last question now. Uh, which is a bit of a different theme from the rest, I think. Hello, my name is Karsten and I'm a UWGB psychology student. My question is, what are other professions besides being a professor that you can do with environmental psychology?
1: Oh, this question I get an awful lot. It is a problem with psychology that There's no job called environmental psychologist. And so it's harder to imagine what job you would actually do. Um, So if I weren't a professor, I think that I would likely be working in an architectural firm um, doing um, what they call design charrettes, which are um, interactions sort of like focus groups with potential users of future environments um, to uh, understand their needs and uh, how the, a future environment could meet their needs by listening and by using my data analysis skills uh, and also some artistic renderings and, and things like that, trying to get people to understand um, how an, a future environment could be for them, and then understanding how it could meet their needs. I sort of think about it like a mood board. I don't know if listeners have heard of a mood board. You like cut out things from a magazine or like pictures you find on Pinterest. I think the modern day version of that is Pinterest. Yes, yeah, like a, a Pinterest kind of kind of a mood board thing. Or if you're designing a new room, like your, your dorm room, and you want to... Um, um, Create a vibe, <laughs> like to <laughs> do a mood board. And I think um, an environmental psychologist is a great person uh, to imagine being that. Or uh, there's a, a lot of conservation, nonprofits, uh, organizations that would love to have psychologists as part of their behavior change team. And so using your psychology knowledge in a conservation nonprofit would be a great job for someone interested in environmental psychology. Um, Maybe that's enough. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for sharing. That sounds like a really cool job, Um, especially like the the creativity part that comes comes in with it, which you you don't get to do so much in in our job. Yes. so I just want to give you a huge thank you for returning to psychology and stuff and helping me to unpack the pros and cons of the emotions around uh, climate change. Uh, just to wrap things up, is there one central idea or message about climate can- climate anxiety that you hope listeners will take away from today?
1: I, I think um, thinking about emotions as not necessarily negative, but complicated. Uh, mm-hmm. And that like just talking about climate anxiety as fear is not enough for us to make a difference to save our planet. And so let's think about the diversity of emotions that we feel as humans and how they can all come to play to create a better world.
0: Oh, Ryan would be so proud of you for that. Response. <laughs> that, that was Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> So Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick and our graphic designer is Kimberly Felice. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dundas. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu podcast, to check out this and past episodes. I'm your host, Allison Jane Martingano. Keep being amazing.